Welcome to the New Health Club podcast. The New Health Club podcast is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this, since we are talking about a new lifestyle here. So what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress. On the New Health Club podcast, I talk to patients who have experienced the psychedelic treatment. I talk to innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. Please enjoy the podcast. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs can be punishable by law. Please keep this in mind. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. Today I'm talking to Ronan Levy from Field Trip Health based in Canada. The company is providing clinics for evidence-based legal psychedelic therapies to treat depression. What I like about them is their attitude towards a really dated idea to define some people as sick or crazy and others are completely healthy. Fieldtrip Health says we treat people, not patients. A much appreciated attitude. And as I talk to Ronan, who's working from his ping pong table right now as his new normal, we discuss the design a place for psychedelic treatment should have and why we need to find new terms and even words for being sick and healthy and crazy. And also why being mindful per se, or practicing mindfulness is not enough anymore these days, since we need new tools. So join me at my home desk and Ronan on his ping pong table as we talk about this new psychedelic world we're just entering. Enjoy the podcast. I would like to know how is your current new normal? So are you at home? Are you working in the office or do you share your office with somebody? Uh, no, we um, we live in Toronto. Uh, that's our primary residence, but we actually have a, a property about an hour and a half north of the city, mm-hmm. um, and we've been holed up up here um, since the pandemic broke out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm working for home from home, um, but because yeah. it's really more of a recreational property, we don't I don't have a desk, so I'm currently oh. working from a ping pong table um, <laughs> in, in the basement. Okay. Wow. That's I haven't heard that. That's a new. That's a new situation. I just not heard of beds and kitchen tables, but not a ping pong table. Um, yeah, I like it up a bit. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, what I find interesting also is that when you, I mean, there are a couple of articles about you already, and you say that, let's say, as a teenager, as a young guy, you you were never actually experiencing any kind of drug related. I don't know, like adventures or anything. So it seems something that's kind of very, it's not very familiar, has never been very familiar with you, any of these substances that we're going to talk about very soon. I mean, how did you, when did you grow up, when you grew up, like with your friends? I mean, I'm sure you had friends, everybody has friends who are actually into early adapters (laughs) with cannabis or psychedelics. So how did you, how was your um, relationship with them? Were you, did you feel kind of estranged? Was were you interested but not really ready to try? Or I find that a very interesting condition always. Yeah, um, no, we definitely didn't estrange any relationships there um, at all. It it was fine. I probably didn't have as much fun at parties then as they <laughs> did uh, at the time, but it was fine. My. my my lack of interest in, in drinking or drugs, I think, was twofold. The first one was probably just being a little bit young and naive um, and believing some of the propaganda that gets fed to kids at school about the evils of drinking and drugs. Um, but I don't think that was a, a totally determinative factor for me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happened to me when I was probably around 15 or so was I went to a concert and I have seasonal allergies like many people do. And, and, and the type of um, antihistamine that I took, I took for a week or two during the summer, 
it made me feel really spaced out for a few weeks at mm. a time. And it was a, a really oh. scary experience, uh, feeling that disconnected and not knowing if I'd feel normal again. Um, and I think that's one of the things that really stopped me from ever being inclined to, to try drugs or, or drink at a young age, which is I never wanted to feel like I couldn't come down. And that's the feeling I had taking, I don't even remember what the drug was. I don't remember what antihistamine it was, but it was pretty terrifying. Mm. Um, and so that was that between my naivete and, uh, and that experience, I just maybe not interested in trying it. And, you know, as, as I matured, as I got into university, you know, I opened my mind a little bit. Um, you know, I think I really started drinking, um, as university students do in my second year after having broken up with a girlfriend yeah. and looking <laughs> probably to escape the emotional trauma that went along with it. And it really started opening my eyes to new perspectives and understanding what the appeal of, of some of these substances were. And, and then beyond that, you know, with cannabis and all that kind of stuff, I was never opposed to it. I didn't have issues if people wanted to use it. It wasn't of interest to me mm-hmm. um, at the time. But then, you know, being being exposed, uh, growing up, wanting to explore new experiences is something that I opened my mind to. But again, it's not something I use terribly frequently. I don't I don't particularly enjoy the experience of cannabis most of the time. Um, so it's it's something I'll occasionally dabble in, but it's not, it's not at the top of my list because I just don't find it that fun or enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so like you, you described often as, I mean, like in, in this couple of pieces I read about you as somebody with, or you say that you're kind of a cautious optimist if it comes to the current kind of development that's actually accelerating very much right now, as we speak, um, the whole psychedelic world or development or consciousness also regarding uh, COVID that um, even other founders or big investors say that they expect that the numbers of people being depressed will actually uh, even rise through the pandemic that we're just experiencing. So um, how do you prevent yourself from being too over-optimistic about <laughs> Um, the current psychedelic situation because I mean one could think if you only read LinkedIn which I mostly do I feel like it's ready to go tomorrow it's like we just like round the corner in a way so but of course it's not so this is kind of an interesting thing to me yeah um, I think I think the last 18 months have, have given me a good dose of humility Mm-hmm. I used to be what I'd probably call naively optimistic um, in the way things will turn out. I'm, I'm much more cautiously optimistic. Uh, I do believe that with respect to psychedelics, the social trends, the medical need uh, are just, they're going to intersect with the fact that they're safe and highly effective. Uh, and I just don't think you can turn back that momentum. And that's why I continue to maintain my optimism. It's, it's, um, It's informed optimism, I think, at this point. You know, there's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a, a graph that describes the entrepreneurial journey. And it's kind of like there's a, mm-hmm. a line going up and to the right uh, on a graph. And that's what's called the um, uninformed optimism. It's when people have a business idea and they think it's the most amazing thing yeah. ever. Um, <laughs> and, but they don't kind of research it, they don't understand, you know, the challenges and all that kind of stuff. And then it turns down. You know, and it, it goes through what's called uninformed pessimism which uh-huh. is when you hit the first hurdles okay. uh, and you realize it's not going to be as perfect as you think it is. And then at the trough, you know, at the bottom of that line, you know, it either goes back up, at which point it's informed optimism, which is like you've gone through a lot of the struggles and learnings and all that kind of stuff. And now you think you have actually a viable business model uh, or it continues to crash, at which point um you know, your business is dead, your idea is dead. And that, that, you know, that trough at the bottom, bottom, I forget, it's, I forget what it's called. I'll look it up. I'll send it to you. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think I've kind of gone through that a little bit, but mm-hmm. I've, I've never hit the bottom of that trough, uh, just because I think the momentum is so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, having gone through that trough a few times over the last couple of years and having a couple of the ideas crash and burn, um, I think it's just helped me be a little bit more, 
cautious in my optimism about going up the curve this time. So there's not as much of a downturn on the, on the other side. Um, is, is I think how I, I maintain my balance right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, um, Canada is obviously a very thriving place for all these things, right? I mean, it seems to be a very nurturing place for a lot of these new psychedelic endeavors, I feel. Mm, but um, I mean, of course, what I'm mostly interested in, what I find very interesting is this idea of uh, the clinics that you're going to build, basically. And I mean, so far, if you look on the website, it's like it's going to be in New York and Los Angeles and um, Jamaica, right? Is, is Are these, these three places? Uh, Toronto, New York and L.A. are going to be the first three. Jamaica yeah. is a research facility for mm -hmm. uh, mushroom cultivation yeah um but beyond toronto la and new york we'll be hitting up um, mm -hmm. a number of large u.s cities those are just the first three so i mean and how i mean first of all i mean of course now there's going to be a little bit of a delay i guess because physically going somewhere is kind of changing a lot and to undergo a treatment but i mean maybe you just explain the um the main idea of these clinics H how are they supposed to work or how do you Yeah, I mean, obviously you can apply on, on the website and then you get a consultation. But I mean, so then you, let's say you're a patient and then you just come to the clinic and what, what happens then? So you, in Canada and the US, the processes will be a little bit more, uh, a little bit different because medicine is more restrictive in Canada. But by and large, what will happen is you get in touch with us in Canada, we'll ask for a referral from either your psychiatrist or your family doctor. Mm -hmm. um, our psychiatrist will, will do a consult with you to make sure that ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is an appropriate treatment option. And we're starting with ketamine, but the business rationale is that we want to be well-positioned to provide psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy when MGMA or psilocybin or any other of the classic psychedelics come out. So ketamine is really just a starting point and a stepping stone because we can start with ketamine and, and build a business and an experience and, and all the things you need to create a thriving clinic network um, with ketamine. Uh, but uh, psychiatrists will do a consultation, make sure that ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is appropriate if that's um, given a green light, then a typical course of treatment, what would happen is after the psychiatrist, you come in for your first dosing session, the ketamine is delivered through an intramuscular injection. Um, a lot of other clinics do it through uh, IV uh, mm -hmm. or uh, we do intramuscular because we believe in the psychedelic experience. We think the psychedelic experience is essential uh, to the therapeutic outcomes. And so through intramuscular injection, you can cause people to go into a, a deeper psychedelic state, a deeper dissociative state. Uh, so they have more of a trip. Um, I think that's where a lot of the, the psychological healing and, and emotional healings happen during that trip. And then immediately after that, that, 40, that, that trip is about 45 minutes typically on ketamine. Um, immediately after you work with one of our therapists in what we call exploratory therapy. So it's, it's really about, um, trying to understand the experience, identify some of the things that may have come up, um, understand how physically it felt, if there was any, you know, feeling of relief or processing of emotions. Um, you'll do that twice. So you'll do a dosing session with uh, uh, exploratory therapy twice. And then following two of those sessions, you will um, have a uh, integration session. So then we'll go from just understanding the experience to working with one of our clinical psychologists who will help you turn those understandings into actionable behavioral change. Um, so if you're dealing with depression or anxiety or stress or anything along those lines, you'll not only have awareness as to what may be driving those, those, those challenges, but you'll also have tangible plans to integrate and, and start moving forward so you get both the benefits of the antidepressant effect of the drug itself Uh, as well as the benefit of essentially cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, uh, which helps you sustain uh, the, the antidepressant effects. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you have, I mean, any, 
I mean, obviously you have already planned out like the architecture of the clinics, of these clinics, but I mean, do you have like a, let's say like a design team or like an, a special department that is especially researching, let's say the perfect design requirements for these treatments? you have a design team, um, it's hard to say what the perfect research design mm -hmm. elements are uh, because there's not a lot of research, actually. One of one of the people we've been speaking with is a researcher named Adam Gazelli, um, based out of the University of California, San Francisco, and, and what he's interested in is looking at what, what aspects of the experience actually drive therapeutic change. So how different music or different yeah. light or different chairs or different, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. and actually measuring on a clinical basis the tangible differences. And, and certainly that's something we'll be tracking as well, probably not with the same degree of academic rigor as, as Adam. But um, but our, our team, you know, we, we brought together what we think to be is the best uh, uh, kind of con uh, convergence of different Uh, different um, uh, professions and, and different um, pursuits uh, to really develop something from the ground up. So we have some of the most recognized psychiatrists in the world advising us. We have people who have done underground therapy with psilocybin advising us. We have clinical psychologists advising us. Um, you know, we have physicians advising us. So we brought together all of these different um perspectives mm -hmm. uh, to try and build something from the ground up that really reflects the best of all different uh, pursuits um, and, and professions to, to build a unique and, and differentiated experience. So, um, so it's, it's all, it's going to be an ongoing evolution. We're going to constantly mm -hmm. be testing and evolving. Uh, but, uh, you know, without having a whole lot of clinical research to say what kind of sets or setting makes a bigger uh, impact, we just have to use the wisdom and experience of our team and advisors uh, to put together something that, that we believe in. Uh, and so far, even though we've only had one patient through the clinic, because we had to close down our trial clinic after the first patient came through uh, due to COVID, yeah. you know, the feedback has been positive on, on an end of one study, but uh, it's, uh, you know, well, it's... You basically, I feel like you're one of the few companies who really have included this idea of... Um, not only like heal sick people, but also better the well. And um, to me, this seems like a sometimes a little bit of a neglected area in this whole new psychedelic, um, let's say, in world that's just emerging. And um, I also think that it's going to be such a, it's going to be like a really big field that's coming out of this. So what, what is, what is exactly, what do you mean if you say like better the well? So let me just speak to the first part of your comment, yeah. which is, yeah, we've designed our clinic to be very welcoming. Uh, I've seen pictures of the synthesis space and our, our clinics, even though they're called clinics, are very much warm, welcoming, safe places. It doesn't look like a medical clinic. Uh, you know, the, the dosing rooms do not look like hospital beds. They look mm -hmm. more uh, like, you know, like a, a very spa-like experience, even though mm -hmm. I don't like using that term. So. I, I agree that uh, that kind of setting, I think, is going to enhance the experience, um, and, and we've built uh, with that in mind, certainly. Um, with respect to bettering the well, uh, this, this can be a very deep conversation, but one of our core philosophies is that the notion of, there's no such thing as a sick person, um, mm -hmm. that we all... Uh, are healthy and or sick at the same time. And some people just need more help than other people at any given instance. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a derivative of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from an author named Tom Robbins, mm -hmm. which says, uh, there's no such thing as a weird person. Some people just need more understanding. And that's the same thing. Yeah. There's no such thing as a sick person. Some people just need more help than others at any given time. And I True. think that's one of the big shifts that's psychedelics can really drive and, and bring forward. And, and you start to see it now with integrative medicine uh, and, and preventative medicine, which is to say that Western medicine and allopathic medicine by and large has been designed to treat problems, but not necessarily. But if you don't have a problem, if you're within the normal range of most, you know, tests or analytics, 
you don't have a problem, but that doesn't necessarily enable you to thrive or, you know, live the, your best life. It just means that you're normal. Um, and I think psychedelics presents a really unique opportunity to shift this conversation, A, to get rid of this notion of people being sick, you know, and thinking mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. as patients. We're all just people. Um, yeah. and, and let's look at people like that. And, and let's use the best of medicine, not only to treat the people who are having greater challenges because they have, you know, have greater degrees of depression and anxiety. We all experience depression and anxiety at some points in our lives, whether they meet the clinical definitions or not. It's, it's, a, it's an experience that I think every single person on the planet can resonate with. And I think psychedelics present the opportunity uh, to help people deal with anxiety and depression, uh, whether clinically diagnosed or not. And mm-hmm. certainly those who have clinical diagnosis and feel it much more intensely and have problems breaking out of <laughs> those thought processes and patterns need more help. And we're happy to provide it, but we shouldn't neglect uh, the people who don't need the, the greater degree of help because at the end of the day, I do think psychedelics have the capacity to not only address what's wrong with people uh, and help lift them up. I think it also has the capacity to lift up the people who, who, you know, just want to expand and and feel love more deeply or empathy or creativity. And I think psychedelics have the capacity to do that. I don't think we should be neglecting all of these positive side effects um, solely to treat those people suffering with clinical diagnoses. And so that's why we included the better than the well in that mm-hmm. conversation, because we think it, it, you know, psychedelics can elevate all of humanity, yeah. um, not just people who have clinical diagnoses. Well, also, I mean, I feel um, there's kind of this, you almost want to say like gray zone of people and especially in the, the, the pre COVID <laughs> modern world. Um, that, um, are actually, I mean, if you really talk to, to them longer, some of them would say, well, I actually feel depressed, although they don't, they don't have a so-called clinical kind of a diagnose. So even, so I yeah. think there's, there's this kind of whole, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's a generation, but it's a whole amount of people who actually, um, don't feel not depressed. So that's my experience from the last couple of years, especially in this so-called like lifestyle, glamorous, I don't know, kind of, you know, upper class, however you want to call this world. Um, and I feel like that's what my, and at the same time, I feel that especially people from that world are extremely interested now in psychedelics because they feel that this is the first time something that can actually lead them to another um, yeah, another life also, actually. That the idea of like a customized experience with, with psychedelics is also something that's becoming more interesting. For example, again, like Synthesis, they have this um, female leadership retreat where you can go for five days and um, explore with the support of psychedelics your own personal leadership vision. Or um, a friend of mine, she's writing a TV show and she's like, I want to go and do this. <laughs> and then afterwards, I want to write a TV show of what I've seen. So, I mean, I feel like it's becoming um, also like a tool for to really access a lot of, yeah, a lot of hidden ideas and hidden solutions for, let's say, the world or for, I mean, you can't say for the world, but also for people just for their own personal life that they've never seen before that kind of solution. So is that something you you find you're interested in? Is that something you also explore with the company? Yes, certainly. Uh, you know, that's still down the road. As, as much as our philosophy is based in a wanting to better the well, uh, there, there's a process to get to the place where I think we'll be able to do really advanced work in, in that space. And, and that means starting with a purely medical focus right now mm-hmm. and, and engendering two things, demonstrating safety, demonstrating efficacy. I think these are important things. And I think most people accept that most psychedelics are, are pretty safe, but, you know, I think for the, the impact that we want to have, we can't just think it's safe. We need to know it's safe. Yeah. Um, and so starting with a, a much more rigorous, purely clinical, purely medical approach 
getting the buy-in from the medical community, if you get the buy-in from the medical community and maybe the sort of clinical psychology community, then you can have much more open conversations on a, on a social level and a political level saying, listen, guys, not only are these molecules safe, they're mm-hmm. effective for treating people with clinical diagnosis. We started with a small audience who have a real and distinct need, and we've shown it's safe. And not only have we shown it's safe and effective in treating these clinical diagnoses, these people are now thriving and expanding. There's now a basis to have a much broader conversation of this should be accessible on a broader basis for people who don't necessarily have these clinical diagnoses. And so we're starting from the place of being very prudent, doing things in a way that will earn the trust and respect of even the most conservative perspectives on this, uh, and, and then evolving it from there. But certainly we'd, we'd love to get there. Um, you know, uh, as my personal coach said, all new ideas come in dreams or from the unknown, right? Like all great mm. inventions, all great True. innovations, they have to come from the unknown. Uh, wow. and, and so when you create connections in the brain, when you open people up to listen to their intuition and their emotions a lot more, um, you enable people to reach into the future more. You enable them to reach into the unknown more. Uh, and that's where fabulous ideas come from. That's where life-changing ideas come from. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not Richard Branson. I'm not name any other yeah. hugely impactful, successful entrepreneur in terms of access to my resources. But in terms of creating impact on humanity, you know, uh, I, I think psychedelics can be just as impactful as the work that Elon Musk is doing to potentially help us, uh, you know, uh, geo, geoform Mars. Um, you know, I think, I think it is, does, does strike at that level in terms of changing the evolution of, of humanity and our engagement with the planet and nature and mm. each other. Um, and, and so I want to get there, but I think before we get there, we've got to, be a little bit prudent, be a little bit cautious, um, not, mm-hmm. not too restrictive, but, but thoughtful. Uh, and then we'll be able to get there. And, and we saw that with the cannabis industry, to be quite honest, to draw a parallel. When we launched our business in the cannabis industry in 2014, we launched at a physician conference or a conference for, for family doctors and nurses, kind of like the first-line responders uh, in, in the medical community. And that first year, almost no doctors wanted to talk to us. They gave us a wide berth and they weren't interested. They didn't want to know. They didn't care. Um, and, but we took a very thoughtful, prudent approach. You know, we treated patients, we showed results, we followed up with them. Uh, and then the next year, a few more doctors stopped at our booth. And by the third year, we were one of the most popular booths in, at the conference. And, uh, the feedback we've got from not only well from our our physicians, the physicians that worked in Canadian cannabis clinics, was that uh, almost all of them started off as skeptics, and almost all of them now report that cannabis has been the single most effective therapeutic agent they've ever prescribed to their patients in terms of improving quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and as a result, we've had I think probably over fifty percent of physicians, family doctors in Ontario refer a patient to us. It's like, that's, that's getting real buy-in. That's getting, you know, that's changing attitudes at, at the most sort of conservative level. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, having dialogues around the therapeutic potential of cannabis is, is no longer, you know, a, a resistance. People are embracing it. People are excited about it. And that's how you push it further. And that's, that's the exact model we're bringing to psychedelics. Um, would yeah. we have loved to be prescribing to every single person who wanted access to cannabis uh, at the time, you know, because philosophically, I think the war on drugs was probably uh, a misguided pursuit. And if people want access to low harm drugs like cannabis, then it's crazy to be putting these people in jail. And so if giving legal access to them prevents them from going to jail, then mm. I think that's a, a worthwhile cause. And would I have loved to have done that on some levels? Certainly. Um, but I'm glad we did it the way we did because it advanced things so much better uh, and so much further and and got so much more buy-in and trust uh, by taking it cautiously, doing it the right way uh, and letting the evidence and the results speak for themselves. Um, I mean, basically you just described that cannabis also then let's, let's say now it's definitely like the totally as a mainstream product, you could almost say, I mean, like 
every country now has their CBD mainstream brand, kind of, or lifestyle brand, in, in almost. Um, so, I mean, in, in what way do you think, um, because it's also, I remember reading this in one article where you said that you, you're interested in bringing psychedelics into the mainstream. So, and, and, I mean, of course, like one part of your strategy is it's backed by science, of course. But, I mean, how do you think this has to be communicated in a broader sense? For example, and next week, I think on May 11th, there's this Netflix movie coming out. It's called um, Have a Good Trip. And it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about this. Um, it's like celebrities yeah. like Sarah Silverman and Ben Stiller, for example, talking about their psychedelic experiences And I think it's not that they talk about it. It's like also illustrated by kind of Disney-ish characters. So, and I mean, um, still the, the, let's say the, the whole artwork around this movie is still very kind of, you know, 60-ish, psychedelic-ish, like orange and blue and green. And, and, and I always wonder if this is such a good idea to always bring it back to a 60s narrative, actually. So what do you think about the, let's say the idea that this will enter entertainment or is already entering entertainment? It's a double-edged sword. Um, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It has mm -hmm. risks and it has benefits. I think mainstreaming the conversation around psychedelics and recognizing that many, many people, famous people, successful people presently and throughout history have used psychedelics to tap into parts of their unconscious that have helped them become who they are is, is laudable. Um, you know, to the extent that it trivializes it or makes it seem like a completely harmless pursuit. I think that's, that's a little bit dangerous because, mm -hmm. uh, I think the worst thing we can do right now is, um, you know, get too liberal and too easygoing and potentially yeah. engender the same, um, pushback and political backlash that happened in the sixties. You know, I, um, I, I'm, I'm in the process of watching a podcast myself, and I was speaking with Don Latin, who the Harvard Psychedelic Club. I don't know if you've read that, but it's a great no, book if you haven't. I haven't. Um, <laughs> and, and in reflecting on it, um, you know, one of the questions was, what, what sort of was most insightful about Don's story and his personal journey with psychedelics and, and all of that kind of stuff? And Don is, I think, in his late 60s now, so he lived the 60s version of psychedelics and is experiencing and witnessing the renaissance happening now. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that kind of came to me was that he's kind of come full circle. He was all into it and then he stopped completely. And now he's kind of dabbling his toe back into it, doing an ayahuasca retreat, talking about it more openly, you know, big advocate for the therapeutic application. And, and, and thinking about that this morning, I was actually in the shower thinking about this. It kind of dawned on me that as there are a lot of people in the community who see the backlash that happened and the prohibition on psychedelics and the criminalization of them as, as a totally misguided um, political uh, conspiracy, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, um, that it denied people access to medications and and mind-opening potential uh, for all of the wrong reasons. But the thought that occurred to me this morning was maybe as a society and as humanity, we weren't ready uh, for psychedelics in the form that they were coming out in that, in that part of six, that 60s counterculture. Maybe we needed the last 50 years of pause to mature as people uh, and be actually prepared to embrace psychedelics in a much more conscious, thoughtful less naive way uh, because I think certainly the, the counterculture and the psychedelic use within the counterculture of the hippie movement was fueled by a level of naivete and, and how could it not be? I mean, most of those people were 19 year old kids yeah, um, at the time this was becoming like emergent. And, and of course it was naive. Um, you know, life, life teaches us wisdom with the experience and, and that's not to say all of it was naive, but there probably were parts that, that was naive. Um, And, and so maybe, maybe we needed this gap. Maybe we needed to take a break from, from that momentum and take a deep breath. And, and now maybe, you know, the, the universe or however you want to define it um, is 
is enabling this reemergent because reemergence because we're ready for it and we need it. I don't know. You know, it's just one of the thoughts that kind of crossed my mind. Yeah. No, it's interesting that, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting theory, but I mean, do you think that, um, because I mean, there, there are a couple of articles already about this saying or a kind of predicting, if you want to call it that, like that, um, that there will be actually more people needing it after the crisis or in the crisis, or I mean, maybe there's another one, we don't know that yet. So, but do you think this will actually push the development of decriminalization? So what, what do you think about the, let's say the, the COVID as an accelerator for psychedelics? I think absolutely COVID is going to accelerate the adoption of uh, psychedelics. We're, you know, we're not only dealing with probably the most complex social and economic challenge that the world has ever seen. Um, the mental health fallout from this is going to be uh, incalculable. I mean, you know, you talked about people experiencing depression, even the wealthy first mm -hmm. world people who yeah. seem to have every luxury they want. It's like everybody on the planet, if they're not feeling some degree of depression, anxiety, anger, and rage about what has just happened, mm. um, they're not really tapped into either what's happening or their emotions. And either way, um, those process, those emotions need to be processed. And, and I think most people don't have the, um, are not well equipped to do that. And I think that's going to lead to greater mental health challenges. I think even the most equipped people, even the most uh, sort yeah. of enlightened people in terms of emotional awareness are, are, ch are challenged by the, the present circumstances. Uh, and so you're going to see a, a massive mental health fallout. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if it comes in the form of depression or mm. anxiety, or maybe it's even a whole new form of yep. um, presentation, mm -hmm. but it's coming. And the truth is, is we don't have a lot of options. You know, I think the focus on mindfulness is good, but um, you know, sort of in a sort of broader social society, but mindfulness doesn't go far enough. Mindfulness exactly. helps people tune into their emotions, but people need to be equipped to pro process those emotions. But if you don't, you kind of just drive them down into your subconscious and, and they're, they reside for a long time. Um, and so, uh, so antidepressants we know don't work terribly well, uh, SSRIs, benzos, all that kind of stuff. They're not, they work for some people and that's wonderful, but they don't work for a lot of people and, and psychedelics seem to work for a lot of people. They seem to have very little risk of harm and they seem to be much more broad-based uh, because I think fundamentally they start to tap at the underlying issues and that's why we, we as field trip believe in the psychedelic experience being an essential part of it, which is it helps you process all of those buried emotions and when you start to process those, then, you know, the physical and biological changes can sort of be sustained. Whereas if you don't change the underlying psycholo psychological drivers of depression and anxiety, then antidepressants are, are only masking the issue. They're, they're helping people get by with it, but they're not, they're not addressing it. And, um, and so, you know, we don't know. We have no idea how the current pandemic is going to affect people's psyches. I mean, on a high level, sure, the depression, anxiety, all of those kind of things come up. But how that actually presents once we're six months, a year, two, mm -hmm. three years down past the, the pandemic is, is unknown. And, and, you know, I don't think we're equipped with it. And I think psychedelics are, are a really interesting tool that we'll have to, to fight um, or address. I, I tried, tried to avoid the, the, the battle um, analogies or the warlike analogies when it comes to psychedelics. Um, but uh, I, I think they're going to present a really unique, persuasive, safe, effective option for dealing with all of the fallout of uh, what's happening right now. Well, I mean, I even sometimes think that um, words like crazy or like weird is like we said earlier, maybe you should, one shouldn't use them anymore. Like, because the, I feel like right, what happens right now is that, and if I talk to people on, on calls or little conferences online, that um, it's almost like a new cocktail of emotions that's being put together that hasn't been put together before. 
Like, for example, you feel extremely, a lot of people feel extremely accelerated in, sen in the sense of um, finding their meaning in life and what they really want to do since they suddenly realize, whoa, I could be dead tomorrow. And at the same time, they're super terrified um, what's going to happen to them and to their family. And, and then, or like they kind of, at the same time, they're super sad, but also very agitated. So I find it's a really interesting new, um, it's like a new kind of, drink or chocolate <laughs> that you put new ingredients yeah, yeah. together that you can't that you haven't just put together before kind of and out of this might come even another kind of um, variation of um, something that you might not even be able to call depression but just like a, a damage from something I don't know it's, I find it extremely hard to say right now well I'm depressed because that's not really say, saying it anymore what's really happening I feel so. Uh, totally, totally. This is a, a unique set of circumstances. You know, it, it's weird to feel bored and restless and scared of the outside world at the yeah. same time. You yeah. know, I, like there's so many, so many new experiences happening. And right, I think um, you know, I, I read an article I think called "The Great Pause" uh, that talks about how mm. you know this has forced us to shed everything that's non-essential in our lives. Um, And, and separate what's essential from what's merely desired. And I think that's important because uh, it, it's helping us connect with a, a simpler form, but it's forcing, us, it's forcing us to connect with a simpler form and that, that may mm -hmm. have not been chosen. And, and so there's a yeah. sense of powerlessness that goes around with that as well. So there's a, a convergence of a whole new suite of emotions happening at the same time that no one's experienced before. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it, it sort of presents and plays out. But I mean, let's talk a little bit about your projects in Jamaica, like the field trip blue. So what, what exactly, what exactly is that? If you explain it to us. So we came out of the cannabis industry and we had built a clinic network in the cannabis industry and then it was great and, and created a lot of value and, and impact, but it seemed that most of the interest and, and excitement around cannabis was in the cultivation and product development. And so as we were trying to conceive of our business model for a uh, field trip, clearly clinics was something on, on our radar, radar and something that we have a lot of experience with. But when we looked at what needs to be built in terms of the infrastructure to support the psychedelic industry, besides clinic, the other thing that we needed noticed is that or realized is that you're going to need to have a new, uh, a broad suite of options that MDMA and psilocybin are, are wonderful, but they're kind of like using hammers uh, sometimes when you need a scalpel to get a job done. And, Also using the lens of cannabis where uh, the scientific rigor and focus on understanding the cannabis plants has led to the identification of over a hundred new cannabinoids, uh, many of which have their own therapeutic potential. We realized that no one has really studied psilocybin producing mushrooms in, in the same degree and uh, with the same rigor as cannabis has been studied over the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, and so the idea with field trip blues is really twofold. One is, doing that research, understanding what other molecules in psilocybin-producing mushrooms may have an impact on the psychedelic experience or may have therapeutic value completely independent of the psychedelic experience. It's just never been studied. So it's a great opportunity for understanding intellectual property, research, general knowledge, um, you know, and, and potentially new, new drugs and, and new products. And then the second point Uh, you know, there seems to be a strong appetite for natural products as opposed to synthetic products mm. these days. Uh, rightly or wrongly, that seems to be the case. And, and I very much foresee the possibility of, of having two complementary parallel markets for psychedelics, one being purely synthetic and medical and the other one being more wellness focused and, and using the plants, you know, sort of plant-based psychedelics as opposed to synthetic versions of that um, for people who are wanting to use psychedelics on a, on a more exploratory basis. And, and that's exactly what you see happening and being proposed in Oregon with the Oregon Psilocybin Services Initiative. Um, they, the, their proposal is to legalize both synthetic as well as, as, as mushrooms. And, and 
what we saw in cannabis is that scaling cultivation uh, of cannabis and presumably mushrooms as well isn't just a matter of getting a builder bigger space to grow more plants. It, it takes thoughtfulness and, and, and innovation to scale in a way that ensures that you get, you're, you're meeting all analytical testing requirements. And then, so the other piece of the research that we're doing in Jamaica is to really start developing the protocols and standard operating procedures to be able to cultivate um, psilocybin producing, producing mushrooms at large scale, such that some of the hiccups and, and missteps in the cannabis industry can be avoided in helping the psychedelics industry emerge. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, what what is your personal or your your outlook for the let's say the time frame? Because when people can actually really be able to use this in a therapy context, psychedelics, because I mean, the emails we get actually most of the time, I would say 90% people are basically asking, when can I do this? And where can I do this? And is it possible tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably what everybody gets who's in some place involved in this kind of industry. So what is your time frame? What do you think? When is one will, what will be possible in a clinic, of course? Like. Yeah. Uh, well, outside of the clinic, it's already happening in the Netherlands uh, yeah. as well as Jamaica. So people who, who have access or who travel to those jurisdictions, I guess not really travel anymore, but you may reside in those jurisdictions. There's options there. Um, But in a purely clinical sense, I put it at about two two to three years. You'll see one of three things happen. You'll see MDMA and the MAPS phase three trial get mm-hmm. across the line and get approval. Um, or you'll see efforts like the Oregon Psilocybin Services Initiative get approval and pass in 2020. I'm quite certain that the momentum behind it and the same people who would like to get this legalization uh, who, are, who are now focusing on, on suicide producing mushrooms it will those will be put on the ballot again in 2022 in, in Oregon and California and Colorado and probably New York and all these places so um, but if Oregon passes it this year then you'll see that market emerge in 2022 because they have a two year rule making time frame or The third option is in Canada, medical cannabis actually came about through constitutional challenge. Uh, and, and we know that there are a number of representatives that against lining up to fight that same constitutional challenge around psychedelics. Um, and so that will be in the court system soon. And it's likely, depending on how the government chooses to proceed in, in fighting those challenges, you'll probably see uh, in Canada that constitutional challenge succeed. It'll probably take a couple of years. Um, so each of those puts the time frame to me somewhere around 2022, 2023, you'll see mm-hmm. some form of legal access to psychedelics, um, in, in North America, um, and, and, and maybe beyond, but I'm just looking at it through the lens of, of Canada and the U.S. because those are the regulatory and legal, legal bodies that I understand. I, I'm not as familiar with how things happen in Europe, but mm. I could see, uh, you know, certainly... If there's an FDA approval, that will follow suit across most Western countries, Canada, the yeah. US, Germany, England, all of that kind of stuff. Um, the other pathways, whether ballot initiative or, or constitutional challenge, um, more jurisdictional specific. I don't see there being a lot of political action uh, on this, um, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. It'd be nice if politicians were more responsive than reactive. Um But that, that's the way it is. And, and so I think it's going to come about through alternative means to, to legalization. I think uh, Germany just a couple of days ago, I read the press release that the first psilocybin study will take place in Germany. And I think they got 2.2 million euros, I think, from the government to do it. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and it's going to be, I think, um, also done by, um, Ms., what's his name, Gerhard Gründer. He's a professor okay. from, from Mannheim. So, but it's, that's, I mean, for Germany, that's a really big thing. I feel that um, they really came through with this. So, and then slowly, probably in every country will have their own studies, I guess. I mean, uh, or more European countries also. I mean, England, of course, is already there, but like France, maybe Italy. I mean, they, they might have the same problem 
with mental health after the whole thing has, has is kind of coming down a little, the whole COVID crisis. And what, what do you say if somebody really tells you this is such bullshit thing with these psychedelics? I think it's like horrible. What, what do you say besides, well, there are so many studies and it's already shown that it's not bullshit. That's what I'd answer, which is like, you don't have to believe me. Uh, yeah. You know, it, the truth is, is like we see it in politics, which is um, uh, you can't change people's emotions with logic by yeah. and large. Yeah. Um, so if someone doesn't want to accept the potential, mm -hmm. uh, then there's little to do. And, and I think the focus is, is just rely on the evidence. Um for it, which is if I could show that they're safe and they're effective, mm -hmm. then as much as you don't like it, I don't think there's a basis or, or rationality for your argument. Um, and, and you can't please all the people all the time. Um, yeah. So I, I'd rather rely on, on data and evidence than, than you know, emotional driven um, conversations. I mean, all you can do is, is listen to these people. Uh, make them feel heard and then respectfully disagree and, <laughs> and, and continue on the path that you think is, is the right path. Yeah, that's a good advice, I feel. Well, I think that was, um, I mean, we could go on for hours. So, but I mean, I think we already okay. have, have an hour. <laughs> so uh, that was super interesting. Thank you so much. And I think it's a really great concept, um, the whole uh, field trip concept. I think it's perfect okay. to me. For having me, this has been a delightful conversation. I have appreciated um, your perspectives and, and the questions that you've asked, and I've been happy to share more about where we're coming back from with field trip and, and where we're going. Yeah, let's do another one very soon. I'm sure that this, like in half a year, there will be new new questions. <laughs> I guess. Um, uh, absolutely. 